Good morning, listeners. This is Susan Yu, a forum where we explore issues and meet people in order to help you make a difference. I'm your first Wednesday of the month host, Dan Jurdy, a Mendocino County supervisor. On the third Wednesday of the month, your host is Ukiah City Councilmember Mari Roden. On today's Susan Yu, we have two recorded conversations. Later in the show, we go to Noyo Harbor, where we check out a new cafe on the waterfront. But it's not just any cafe. When you eat at the Slack Tide Cafe, you support the educational programs of the Noyo Center for Marine Science. Join me there as we enjoy a cup of coffee, a south-facing deck overlooking the Noyo River, and learn about the Noyo Center's programs now at three locations in Fort Bragg. But first, we catch up with our North Coast Member of Congress, Jared Huffman. We talk about a range of subjects including legislation passed by this Congress, to recent Supreme Court rulings, to his background in water policy and his thoughts on a viable solution to the Eel River water diversion into the Russian River. We even talk about his cat, Truman. Today on Citizen U, we meet a community member who's made a tremendous difference locally and regionally, uh, Jared Huffman. He is today our North Coast Congressman, first elected to the House of Representatives in 2012. Prior to that, he was elected to the State Assembly for six years, from 2006 to 2012. And prior to that, he was elected to local government, serving on the Marin Water Board. Uh, Congressman Huffman, welcome to Citizen U. Dan, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was hoping we could kind of uh, go over some first of the show, go over some of the major um, legislation people that you voted on in in Congress this last year. And um, let, let's start with the most recent, which was the um, yeah, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, I think. Great. Go ahead. Uh, well, we're on a bit of a roll, Supervisor Jerdy. <laughs> this Congress probably doesn't get any style points for how we have gotten there. But quietly and sometimes awkwardly over the last six to eight months, uh, we have begun assembling a record of really big deliverables for the American people. So the first gun violence reform we've been able to pass through through Congress in 30 years, a huge bipartisan infrastructure uh, bill that became law last November, um, a major Inflation Reduction Act that lowers prescription drug prices, um, also makes sure that health care premiums don't spiral out of control in the months ahead because they were set to kind of go off a cliff. And then very importantly, uh, the largest investment in clean energy and climate action that we've ever done. Um, add to that a, a bill we call the CHIPS Plus Act, which is to address the supply chain constraint and the fact that we no longer have uh, the the world leadership role on semiconductor manufacturing and science and technology in some respects. So uh, it's it's a huge forward-looking bill. We've passed the largest investment in wildlife uh, restoration and habitat protection, a bill called the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Some of this has bipartisan support. Most of it uh, has been pretty much Democrats doing all the heavy lifting. But when you add it all up and then couple it with the the big one we did out the gate, the American Rescue Plan, which uh, was a huge multi-trillion dollar bill that uh, got emergency relief out to small businesses and families during the depths of the pandemic, had the largest vaccine rollout in in, Amer- in world history and most successful, brought the pandemic under control, got the economy out of the ditch. It is a good story to tell, and it is translating to a lot of momentum right now for Democrats. 
Yeah, and in fact, in fact, I think there was the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act also that was um, yeah. in there as well. And you know, it's it's um, you know, we often hear sort of the, the the headlines are often about the bad news, but you rarely hear about the good news. And um, and and your work in Congress, um, just kind of go overview. There's 435 members of the House. You're one of over 50 from here in California. Um, just what's what's kind of the daily kind of the daily work of of a member of Congress? Well, you, you divide your time between uh, Washington, where you know when you're in session back there, you're voting on the floor, but maybe more importantly, you're doing the committee work uh, that is so important to develop bills. And I'm on the Natural Resources and the Transportation and Infrastructure Committees. I'm also on the Select Committee for the Climate Crisis. Um, so all of that's important, but then when I'm not in Washington, I'm back here uh, tending to the care and feeding of a, of a huge coastal district that includes six different counties. Mendocino is right in the middle of it. Yeah, and when you were a member of the state assembly, you were also uh, chair of, of a wildlife committee um, similar mm -hmm. to your assignment in, in, in Congress. Um, can you kind of compare and contrast um, work on those two different committees? Yeah, so the assembly committee I chaired was called Water Parks and Wildlife, uh, pretty descriptive, uh, you know, the jurisdiction there. And uh, in Congress, uh, in the House Natural Resources Committee, I chair the Water Oceans and Wildlife um, subcommittee. So uh, in some ways, when you add in oceans and uh, all of that stuff, it, it's it's an even broader jurisdiction, but I don't have parks. That's That's the main difference. And of course, you know, I'm focused on the federal aspect of all this. And I think I saw in a, in a separate interview you did, where you described in the House, there there are actually several different committees that have different jurisdictions over water. Can you kind of yeah. describe some of those distinctions? Yeah, it's true. Now, the, the, it was the same in, in Sacramento at the state level. When you were dealing with water quality, there was a separate committee called Environmental Safety and Toxic uh, Control, or Toxic Management, I think, it was ESTM. Uh, and I chaired that initially. Uh, that that was water quality, but everything else about water was over in the, the other committee I chaired. Uh, in Congress, it's split up even more. Uh, when you're talking about like drinking water standards, that is the EPA Clean Water Act. That's over at a com large committee called Energy and Commerce. If you're talking about flood, um, that is the Corps of Engineers and another part of the Clean Water Act. Um, and that is at the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, which I serve on. Uh, and then when you're talking about um, water supply, um, you know, stream flows, the the environmental aspects of water, um, that's the committee I chair, I sub, I, subcommittee I chair, sorry, um, water oceans and wildlife. And, and really, you bring sort of an interesting background on water. As I mentioned, you served for 12 years on the Marin County Water uh, District Board. Uh, so you're on the one hand, you're you're representing ratepayers. On the other hand, and, and trying to make sure you're getting water at a reasonable price for your ratepayers, not spending money on sort of bloated infrastructure yep. projects that are, you know, too expensive to sustain. And and yet also looking at kind of the environment. What's the best um, water source for the environment? So can you maybe talk about how that maybe a, a sort of a unique perspective for a member of the House of Representatives. Yeah, I think it's it's helpful to have that experience. I, I think I have tackled every aspect of water from, from just about every perspective because I've been an environmental uh, water attorney with NRDC in a prior life. 
but I've also been on the board of a water district that had seven dams and had to deliver the goods on, you know, water supply to 185,000 people. So um, that I think prepared me pretty well to go on and dig into the policy at the state level and at the federal level. Um, I, I've been at this water business for quite some time. Yeah, and I, I've seen where you've you've focused um, in your assembly service. Some of your attention was focused on um, the Sacramento River, San Joaquin River, and um, could you? And then it seems like some of that work translates now into the North Coast, where there have been dams, uh, I think, off the Klamath and some other places that yeah. have have been decommissioned. Um, can you talk about that experience in the assembly and and now in the House? Yeah, so even before I got to the assembly, when I was an NRDC um, water and fish attorney, um, I was involved in a huge river restoration project, the San Joaquin River, um, third largest river in the state, second longest river. But in the 1940s, uh, with the completion of a huge federal dam, the Friant Dam, they literally dried up the entire river, took all the water, left a 60-mile stretch that was just sand. Um, it's, it's one of the most glaring um, just abuses, I, I think, of uh, environmental values and impacts to downstream interests that we've seen with a with a large water project. So, for about 20 years, this coalition of environmental and fishing groups litigated against the federal government and the water contractors there. And I got to um, work on bringing that longstanding litigation to a settlement that actually worked for both the farmers, uh, the government, and the Environmental and Fishing Coalition. Um, it's, it's, I think, a pretty good success story. And we have returned flows and salmon, believe it or not, to this dead river. Uh, and we've done it in a way that uh, is respectful and um, work, workable uh, for the ag interests involved in, in the San Joaquin Valley. And then more recently, there's been similar work um, in the North Coast, right? The, the Klamath? Um... Yeah, the Klamath is a little bit of a clearer um, cut because there's no water supply involved in these four hydro dams on the Klamath River. You're just simply dealing with um, aging obsolete hydro dams that cause terrible water quality and parasite problems that have really wrecked um, the salmon and steelhead fisheries for downstream tribes that I represent and the fishing community for decades. And it was simply a function of the owner of those dams coming to realize that uh, relicensing them was gonna be very expensive and impractical and probably get that power from renewables and other sources more cheaply and easily. So that was a business decision, thankfully supported by uh, the states of Oregon and California and the federal government and the tribes I represent um, all coming together. And the good news there, Dan, is that um, this time next year, we should be taking out the first of those four dams on the ground, dam removal, largest dam removal, really good news for lower Klamath River stakeholders. It, one interesting uh, just sort of observation I'm making is, is during your career in the assembly and now in Congress, the state of California, partly due to some of these federal appropriations, but also just due to the, the you know windfalls in the stock market and the st state record surpluses, the state of California really has more money now to implement many of these pr projects than they did 10, 15 years ago. Um, so, um, what's, what's your prognosis on, on the ability to fund some of these projects? Yeah, the state has obviously more money to do this and a lot of other things, <laughs> certainly than they did when I was in the assembly. Uh, we're never going to have a better time to invest in 
infrastructure, clean energy, uh, environmental restoration, and other priorities. And to make it even better, uh, the has put historic levels of resources on the table uh, through the bipartisan infrastructure law and um, other legislation we've been passing here in the last couple of years. So we're just recapping about how there seems to be more both state and federal dollars available for major major restoration and, and infrastructure projects. Yeah, th these are the good times. Uh, I, I think more than any time I can remember in public life, both state and federal, uh, we've never seen resources like this available, not just for environmental restoration and water projects, but for the whole the whole portfolio of needs that we have, transportation infrastructure, broadband expansion, clean energy. We're never going to have a better time to do these big things than right now. And on that front, obviously here in um, the Mendocino County and Sonoma County, there's the um, the Eel River diversion that takes place that goes into the, into the Russian River. And you've led a, a group people a people in the um, uh, Eel River Basin and in the Russian River Basin to try to meet together to, to discuss you know ways to make something that works for both basins. You've called it the two basin solution. Uh, in, any thoughts on on how that could um, result in in hopefully beneficial um, water use for both the eel and for the Russian River? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. So this is an issue that to to a lot of folks who depend on eel river diversions, and basically I'm talking about anybody in the Russian River Basin downstream of Lake Mendocino, and also the folks in Potter Valley. Um, it's really scary because for the last hundred years. Uh, those diversions through PG&E's hydro project have been kind of a lifeline. Uh, it's most of the water that fills up Lake Mendocino in any given year, and it's all of the water that comes through the Potter Valley. So um, the idea of that project going away, which is what is happening, PG&E is abandoning the project for economic reasons largely. Uh, they lose, you know, six to seven million dollars a year on this project. So they're uh, doing what we call abandonment and decommissioning. That's a process that will be overseen by um, the Federal Ener Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC. And, um, you know, obviously that's that's a pretty scary scenario for a lot of folks. But I think there is an opportunity here uh, because this project has never been all that valuable for hydro uh, power. It is obviously very valuable for water. And there is a way to manage it to be a win-win where we continue to get those essential diversions into the Russian River Basin, uh, probably in a way where they would come mostly in wet winter months and not so much in the summer. And you can do that using a run of the river diversion that would uh, involve removing Scott Dam over on the other side, uh, on the Eel River side. Uh, and that opens up all kinds of salmon and uh, fish habitat restoration that's super important to tribes, to Humboldt County, to the fishing interests. All of them are engaged in the FERC proceeding and everybody's lawyered up. Uh, and and my what I've been trying to do, Dan, for the last three years is get folks to the table to agree on a win-win where, yes, we'll give you a free-flowing river on the eel, but we're going to have a run-of-the-river diversion sufficient to meet the needs in the Russian River Basin. That's totally doable. We've done the studies, the modeling. Um, we can do that, and that'll provide long-term certainty uh, for you know the folks on the Russian River side and really a, a big and exciting environmental restoration opportunity on the eel. Uh, he, here's the thing that P 
people need to understand. Uh, for the first 15 years of this project's life, back in the early 1900s, there was no Scott Dam. It was a run-of-the-river hydro diversion, just like what we're proposing right now. And guess what? During that 15-year period, more water was diverted into the Russian River Basin than we've been diverting in recent years. So anyone who says, gosh, you can't do it, you can't get there, we've got a 15-year record from the early life of this project that proves you can do it. Uh, we can absolutely do it. And I hope we can get folks to work together toward that win-win outcome. That has been my two-basin solution. Uh, right now, uh, it's sort of devolved into fighting and name-calling and I'm certainly getting called my share of names by folks who I think are uh, misrepresenting what's going on or maybe not understanding. Uh, but I'm convinced that at the end of the day, we will bring this thing together around this very concept of a two-basin solution, and it's going to work very well for Mendocino County. Yeah, I, I, I'm optimistic. I, I, when I talk to a number of people in Mendocino County, and, and in, particularly in Sonoma, they they seem to be um, pretty confident that this um, run of the river diversion can work. It's, it, uh, there's a way to engineer it, and um, and I think they're really eager to you know seize the moment while the state and the federal government have funds available for these infrastructure projects to to reach an agreement. So hopefully hopefully that'll happen. Yeah, I think folks might have to fight with each other for a while <laughs> before it sort of ripens to the point of uh, a compromise and an agreement, but it's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that really solves the problem in a durable and uh, viable way. So Jared, we talked a little bit about uh, how federal funds come often to the state and then the state distributes them often in, in grant programs that say local governments or tribes can apply for. Um, you saw some of that on the on the other side when you were in the state assembly, but but the, the federal government wasn't <laughs> distributing as much money to the state at that time. Um, what's your advice for members of the public or, or local governments if they're trying to access those funds? Is it to you know work through different associations like the county association or league of cities, their local state legislators, the governor's office? What's what's your suggestion on how they kind of track all that? Yeah, de definitely um, working with some umbrella group or association working regionally wherever you can as part of a regional plan is a great way to have successful uh, federal funding requests, but also include me in my office. Uh, Jez Anderson represents me in offices I have in both Fort Bragg and Ukiah, and we always want to help anyone in our district who is applying for federal funding, uh, and we can make a difference. We can help make sure you're uh, in touch with the right agencies, that they're being responsive, and that you have all the information you need to be successful. Okay. And just a reminder to our listeners, this is Susan Yu. I'm your host, Dan Jurdy, first Wednesday of the month, um, host Mari Roden on the third Wednesday of the month. And this is uh, Public Radio, Mendocino County Public Radio, KZYX. And today our guest is Jared Huffman. He's an, our member of Congress representing us here in the North Coast. Jared, you know, We've seen number of people get appointed to the Supreme Court over the recent years, and but it was still, I, I got to say, it was like a punch to the gut when the court overturned Roe uh, versus Roe v. Wade. And, um, you know, what do you see that the, that the Biden administration or the House of Representatives or our, our state, you know, what can, pe what can people see as um, some sort of relief from the 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 
kind of unprecedented action by the Supreme Court to disregard nearly 50 years of precedent. Yeah, it's obviously a scary time. This Supreme Court is radical. Um, they are not judicial conservatives. They do not practice judicial constraint. They have an agenda. And they've been building to this moment now for 30, almost 40 years. This did not just happen. Um, these are right-wing groups, in particular right-wing evangelical, uh, white Christian nationalist groups that have been working to get a court like this. And they finally got it. And um, that road decision, the Dobbs decision, uh, is maybe the biggest gut punch, but it wasn't the only one. We had a series of terrible decisions this term uh, from this radical Supreme Court. In the case of uh, West Virginia versus EPA, they literally just made up uh, a new legal doctrine to stop EPA from regulating uh, the power sector, from basically regulating coal out of existence. And it's a so-called major questions doctrine where they've said, you know, if, uh, if an agency tries to pass regulations that are, have an economy-wide impact and implicate that kind of a major question, there has to be explicit congressional authorization for them to do the exact thing they're trying to do. Otherwise, they can't do it. Um, that is just something they made up out of whole cloth. That is nowhere in the Clean Air Act. It's nowhere in... Uh, federal law or the Constitution. So anyone who thinks that, you know, judicial conservatives uh, don't engage in activism and pursue radical agendas, uh, just take a look at that. And then they've also um, done some really disturbing things on religious liberty. You know, our First Amendment provides two pieces of um, religious liberty. One is the Establishment Clause that protects us from our government mandating religion or explicitly endorsing or recognizing any religion. That's very important, the separation of church and state, uh, the freedom from religion being imposed on you or being um, adopted by your government. And then the second part is the free exercise. You are free to do anything you want in your individual life. Well, the court has kind of exalted the free exercise side of that in a way that all but uh, nullifies the, the establishment clause. So the state of Maine, uh, in, in one of the cases this term, uh, was contracting out some of its uh, education services in rural areas where they didn't have public schools. So they uh, were paying private entities to, to basically do charter schools. And churches sued, saying that they were discriminating by not allowing churches to compete for those education contracts. And Maine has long had a longstanding policy, like many states, against not publicly funding church schools. Well, this Supreme Court said, uh, you now have to do that. So in other words, by honoring the establishment clause and defending the separation of church and state, the state of Maine in this Supreme Court's eyes violated the free exercise clause. That's how twisted this religious agenda of theirs has become. And then of course they had a horrible case about a football coach who was uh, at least indirectly pressuring athletes to join him at midfield in prayer. Um, and the school, the school district was told they couldn't do anything about that. They had to let that happen in the name of free exercise. So it's, it's pretty disturbing. So if, if someone was to ask you what's two or three things a member of the public could do um, to try to ensure, you know, um, you know, precedent is honored by the Supreme Court and, and not these decisions that we're seeing, what's, what's the two or three things that a member of the public could do? 
most important thing we can do right now, because I know everyone is looking for the quick fix to this scary Supreme Court. Uh, you got to elect two new U.S. senators and you got to hold a Democratic House. If we can do those two things, we can dump the filibuster and we can legislate in a way that backfills for all of these terrible decisions. So if the Supreme Court says, well, Congress wasn't clear enough to let you regulate you know, carbon pollution in this way, well, Congress can backfill with more specific legislation. We can do that a lot faster than anything else to address the problem. We can do that to address the Dobbs decision and, and Roe v. Wade. We can absolutely codify women's reproductive rights. Uh, we've already passed that out of the House. We just need to dump the filibuster and it'll pass the Senate. We can codify gay marriage and other things that are probably in the crosshairs of this Supreme Court as well. Um, it's a little trickier on the, the religious liberty side of it, but many of the things this Supreme Court is doing, the sinister agenda of theirs, can be offset if we have the right Congress, and that's the fastest thing um, to, to solve the problem. Well, many of those topics, you know, polls show that the vast majority of Americans um, are not with the Supreme Court on and the, the public supports Roe v. Wade. So, yeah, you would you would hope if those congressional districts, um, unfortunately, some of them have been gerrymandered so severely in some of these states, it's it's a really stiff climb to to retain the majority. But um, but I, I think you're probably closer to seeing if that's possible or not. So are you uh, somewhat optimistic? Well, I am getting more optimistic every day, uh, Dan, and, and and I mean literally every day. Yesterday, in the state of Alaska, for the first time in 40 years, Alaskans elected a Democrat to represent them in Congress. It's a Native American pro-choice woman named Mary Feltola. She's going to be sworn in uh, to be my colleague in Congress next week. And it is now the third special election that we were supposed to lose that we won. Uh, our turnout is off the charts. Uh, Democratic and independent voters and even a lot of Republicans who care about women's rights and uh, reproductive choice are coming to the polls and they're voting. You saw what happened in Kansas. So something's going on. And uh, I think it bodes very well for our chances of hanging on to, to our majority and if not growing it. Well, speaking of Kansas in the Midwest, Jared, I've got to ask you, you've on Facebook, you've got uh, pictures of your cat, uh, Truman. Is it is it named after Harry Truman? Uh, you are very astute, Supervisor. I, I grew up in Independence, Missouri, so my political hero is Harry S. Truman. And uh, yes, uh, my cat is named after the uh, that president. Um, it's funny, uh, I have officially now on my, my personal Facebook page, I still have sort of a normal official Facebook page, which is like Rep Huffman, you can just type that in and you'll get to my official Facebook page. But I've also had a personal and campaign side page for years, Facebook changed its algorithm. And I started noticing about six months ago, nobody was seeing my stuff on, on the personal side. And they kept giving me these notices that you know, I could promote and boost my posts and get people to see them if I wanted to pay. And that's like total BS. I'm not going to do that. So I have discovered that if I post cute pictures of my cat Truman, all of a sudden the metrics are the way they used to be. Everybody sees my post and, you know, we're, we're back in business. So I have just officially uh, rededicated my personal Facebook page to Truman. It's now called Congressman Huffman's Cat Truman. And I hope people like cats. Well, I think Truman is certifiably a cute cat. So good job there. Thanks. Um, so 
What, what's it like being a member of Congress? I mean, again, you started out at local government on the water board, then the assembly for six years, but you know, you're, you must split your time between DC and the West coast. It's, you know, that's not going to be easy on anybody. Um, what's it like on you and your family? Well, I'll be honest with you. It's, it's a lousy lifestyle. Um, that part of it is not great. The toxic political climate we're in today is really unpleasant, um, but I don't mean to be a complainer uh, because the offsetting great side of my job is that I am in the highest arena in politics at a really important time. The issues that I work on are so consequential. History is being made you know, every single day, it seems, and I get to be in the arena representing this awesome coastal district. So. I, uh, I am a happy warrior. I like the work I do. Uh, I am happy to deal with the, uh, the burdens and lifestyle, uh, the less than optimal lifestyle that, that accompanies it, uh, because it's really rewarding to, to be able to do that work. Okay. And uh, Jared, um, anything else you want to cover in terms of the legislation from this session? Uh, I think the only remaining big thing you're going to see in Congress before the election is a fight in the weeks ahead over this side deal that Joe Manchin cut with Chuck Schumer. Um, and folks know we got the Inflation Reduction Act. I supported it. It, it wasn't ideal. There was some bad fossil fuel business as usual in it, but some really great industrial policy reforms that are going to move us to clean energy. And uh, I welcome the chance to vote for that. But this side deal that Manchin cut with Schumer is not binding on me or anyone else. And it's about so-called permitting reform. Uh, Manchin wants to make it really easy to do massive fossil fuel projects. And so he's, he's saying, you know, let's put the fossil in with the wind and solar and everything else and just make it really easy to shortcut environmental reviews. Um, I'm not going to I'm not going to support that kind of policy. I'm happy to have the conversation about clean energy and transmission lines, but not for fossil fuel pipelines and LNG facilities. No way. Um, and we're going to have a big fight about that when I get back to Congress in the weeks ahead, because Chuck Schumer feels like he needs to honor that deal. Uh, I feel like I owe Joe Manchin absolutely nothing. So um, that's uh, probably something you'll be reading more about. I believe both the Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act have um, do have funding for things like EV chargers, which we're working on here in Mendocino County and, and throughout the North Coast. Uh, is that subject to a later trailer bill or is, or is that um, passed into law? So the, the charging tax, the tax credits for EV charging infrastructure are good. They are in the law. They're one of the better things. There's also from the prior bipartisan infrastructure law, many billions of dollars available to support that, both for the interstate charging system, and these are chargers that are going to be, you know, kind of proximate to interstate highways, but also for local communities, including those in Mendocino. They need to be developing their plans. And they need to be reaching out to my office and going for this federal funding because it's going to be available um, very, very soon. Uh, but well, the other piece of this for folks who care about electric vehicles, Manchin kind of jammed us a little bit in this law because uh, we did get uh, an extension of the $7,500 tax credit for EVs, but it carries with it these content standards. Uh, and I support the general policy direction of this to try to make sure that the, the critical minerals and raw materials that go into the batteries and other components are sourced from friendly nations uh, that are not part of slave labor or anything like that. 
uh, and that they are assembled either in the United States or in countries where we have trade agreements. That's a good policy. But when you make that go live right now, there's not a single EV on the market that's going to meet that standard. And what it means is for some period of time, the tax credit won't be available while the industry catches up to these new standards. And we're going to have to work on that. I hope uh, if we win a few more seats in the Senate, we can reopen this and create a little bit more of a phase-in so the tax credit can keep working for us right away. Well, thank you, uh, Jared Hubman, Congressman from the North Coast, for sharing your time with our listeners here on KZUX, Mendocino County Public Radio. Um, any final thoughts? Thanks for having me, Supervisor. Great job uh, having an important community conversation, and uh, thanks for including me. That was our check-in with our representative in Congress, Jared Huffman. Now we go and explore the new Slack Tide Cafe in Noyo Harbor. Slack Tide Cafe is the inspiration of the Noyo Center for Marine Science, a nonprofit launched roughly 10 years ago by residents of the Mendocino Coast and the city of Fort Bragg. With the addition of the cafe, the Noyo Center now operates at three properties in Fort Bragg to fulfill its mission to advance ocean conservation through education, exploration, and experience. Operations Manager Lynn Sullivan and Development Director Michael Hicks. Michael, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Noyo Center and and how this property became part of your portfolio of of, um, facilities here on the Mendocino Coast here in Fort Bragg? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, So the Noyo Center, for those who don't know us, a nonprofit here based in Fort Bragg, uh, who we really work with marine science, conservation, and education. Um, we have a couple interpretive facilities, the Discovery Center downtown and the Crow's Nest on the Headlands. But until this point, we did not have any access to the water. And uh, board members and staff of the Noyo Center had been looking at different properties in Noyo Harbor over the years, but nothing really fit what we're looking for. And then the idea came up to look at this uh, former restaurant. It used to be Carini's Fish Grotto, uh, closed in 2014 and had been sitting empty since then. And a lot of people are asking, like, why did you guys get a restaurant? And, you know, even some of the staff had those thoughts, too. But it gives us 60 feet of dock access to the river and gets us onto the river, which we can talk about, um, which really is a game changer for us and really helps in all of our marine science work and research and education programs we're doing. And Lynn, can you talk a little bit about how you joined the Noyo Center and and what, what you're working on here? Right. So I'd been following what the Noyo Center for Marine Science has been doing from afar. My husband and I moved from Indiana in 2019 and were really interested in what was happening here. And um, shortly after moving here, I started volunteering with the organization and really fell in love with the mission and the people and the tenacity of the the people involved and and, uh, the can-do attitude with this organization. And so when the opportunity came around for them to hire an operations manager, I submitted my resume and was fortunate enough to get the job um, just a year ago, August um, of 2021. So I've just been here about a year and I'm so happy to be a part of the organization. Um, I'm here as an operations manager helping to basically facilitate anything that needs to happen um, from developing policies and working with staff on HR and navigating insurance and um, paying bills and all that that kind of helps support what the organization is doing so that our amazing staff can 
um, can do what they do. And Michael, um, you touched on it a little bit, but can you talk a little bit about this amazing site here down at Noyo Harbor here? We are on North Harbor Drive, but it's a south-facing piece of property, so it's kind of a unique spot. Yeah, it's for those who haven't been here, um, I would tell you to come down and just experience it, but it is incredible. Like, even right now as we've been sitting here out on the deck that overlooks the river, uh, we see sea lions, harbor seals, Uh, river otters and a variety of birds in this area so it's just like this front row view for all the rich marine life and animals that we have in this harbor and also you get to see a working harbor you get to see fishing boats go by tour groups and see all the activity that this harbor really provides both for this community tourists that come in so uh, we're thrilled to have the space. People have just been raving about coming out here and getting to have coffee, some food, some drinks, and just getting to enjoy the space and feel more connected uh, to the natural world that this wonderful place we're at, where they get to see these animals up close and get to learn more about what we're doing uh, for the local area and for the Mendocino Coast. It seems to be this sort of an amazing transformation of the property. I mean, I, I remember coming down here over the years uh, to Carini's, and um, I actually didn't even notice they had this big deck out here. Um, and so this is, in my mind, the, the kind of the hidden jewel, jewel of this piece of property is this south-facing deck protected from the wind on, with the building on the west and the north. And and then you've got this, like you said, 60 feet of dock space that where boats can come up and launch uh, kayaks, anything, I guess. Yeah, so we have a we have a lot of different plans. You know, we're going to look at both things we can do. Um, we are we have some grants working on funding that will be eventually getting an electric boat that can seat about up to eight people that we'll be able to use for a variety of pieces. Um, everything from researchers coming in from out of town to our own staff going out doing river monitoring, checking the health of the river throughout the season. Uh, also using a lot for our education programs. We do a lot of. Uh, education outreach, summer camps, and we'll be able to get kids out on there and to get them more immersed and connected to the water. And everything from looking at the pollution that's in there to checking the health, salinity levels, water temperature. Um, So that'll be great. But you're also right. We can also partner with, you know, tour groups that come through, you know, maybe at some point, you know, a kayak tour could pull up and could pop in and get like a quick lunch, a bite for lunch, and then continue on their tour. So I think there's a lot of different um, things we can do with this space and to have this for the community wonderful to give more access to the water. And you, you talked about um, some of the working with kids and I, I think right now you already have some summer programs uh, with with children. Can you talk a little bit about what you already have up and running? Oh right so we have this fantastic um, summer camp program um, it's headed up by Sue Coulter, our education coordinator and uh, newer staff Michael who came on to help out with the camps and is um, also helping out with some other educational programs. So this past year we had four um, separate camps and they all, almost all of them sold out within weeks. They're a really popular way for kids to engage with uh, nature and experience, um, you know, a lot of different activities and make new friends and we've had several repeat customers kids who had such a great time over the last couple years and they wanted to come back and it's been a really good um, program and we're definitely wanting to continue that um, but then expand on that using the harbor property as also another educational point 
Um, I also wanted to talk about a little bit with the cafe and the way that that allows us to engage our, the community at a whole different level. So coming in for a cup of coffee or some great food, um, they can also experience some of our staff who are here on site, who are knowledgeable about marine science. And you never know who might be here or maybe what kind of projects we're working on, but anybody coming in can come in and engage with our staff and learn about what's going on um, kind of spontaneously. Um, but we also do plan on having some uh, science talks and more organized events out here to um, utilize the, the harbor in that way as an, as an educational platform. And just to talk a little bit about the cafe, you know, it's always interesting to see when there's a new restaurant or a cafe that opens up. And, and I really like the fact that you guys created a, looked for a niche that wasn't being met by an existing restaurant. We've got some amazing fish restaurants that have opened up in the last several years, along with the longstanding ones that have been here for years. And, and, and instead of just trying to repeat, you know, what everybody else was doing, it looked like you guys made a conscious effort to offer something totally different with the, with the cafe and the coffee in the morning, because many of these restaurants open up at lunch and dinner time. And so can you talk a little bit about the kind of the idea behind the cafe? Yeah, um, no, you're, you, you hit that right on the head. There's, there was definitely a, a niche to fill. And, you know, even just yesterday, seeing some of the, the, the employees from the different fish companies around here popping in to get coffee, and they haven't had that place down here to do this and as you said there's a lot of great places we are very lucky to have wonderful neighbors Noyal fish companies next door they've been outstanding in helping us with guidance and and just thoughts and um lending their help and expertise princess seafood a lot of great places down here but now we can be that morning place for folks people coming out getting ready to do uh, boat tours fishing tours get that coffee in the morning or for those who maybe kind of want something different you know and as uh, Lynn was kind of talking about a piece we see of the cafe as well is that it can be an educational tool. We can, as we grow, we can, t- can talk about how to run a cafe sustainably, how to tie that into environmental and, and what we do. Even when you probably came in and saw the menu, like there's a discount if you um, either bring your own, your own cup or use an in-house mug and don't use it to go. Just little things like that that we can start to kind of model and do. But um, we're really excited to be here for those people in the morning. that want to come out and Usually it's like a nice little mist or fog coming through and you get to see the the day kind of take over by lunchtime and um, it's a great place to spend the morning. Yeah, just um, being here working on the cafe as we've been working to get it open, we see a lot of people coming by asking us, what's going on? When are you opening? Um, a couple came by and they were looking for a place to get a cup of coffee and I you know, I had to say, well, can you come back in two weeks? Because <laughs> they couldn't find a good cup of coffee, um, you know, anywhere in the area. So we, we definitely feel um, that we're filling a, a niche and a, a need for the community. And um, we're just grateful to be here. Oh, uh, yeah. We're open uh, Thursday through Monday, uh, 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. Um, the reason for that partly is because that also kind of mirrors to some degree the schedule of our other facilities which are open Thursday through Monday so that's where we'll start um, you know we have uh, coffee smoothies tea some pastries bagels lunchtime we have some sandwiches salads so nice variety um, a small simple menu but like a, but enough variety where you can kind of find stuff for everybody and some really good pastries like from different places around town I'm enjoying a, a lemon poppy seed right now. Yeah, I think um, some of 
listeners might also be wondering what you know what is a marine science organization doing opening a cafe and I think it's really important to mention too that this is um, a really important funding mechanism for us so by opening this cafe it's allowing us to bring an income that will support our educational programs across the, the organization so we really um, in thinking it out really felt like it might end up really being a good fit for us to open a cafe and and to, work jointly with our other programs. Is the intent to have the cafe open year-round? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be open, you know, winter, spring, yeah, year-round. So it can be that opportunity and kind of um, probably starting in 2023, we'll be really looking not only at using the dock to get out on the river, but doing some marine science programs here on the property. You know, we have additional space where where we, we can do pieces. One vision is to have at least one if not two big aquariums in the inside where when we start working on an abalone broodstock program which we're kind of coordinating right now with some different partners people can watch that over time and see that and feel that connection so because it comes this like living experience where people can do that because a lot of places you hear about research going on you hear about things but it might be behind a couple closed walls and you don't really get to see it but this way people can come here have some food and drink but also get to kind of see what's working what's going on and learning and understanding better their their just natural world around them in this beautiful slice of the coast yeah i'm sure you've had some surprise donations of, of different amounts you know maybe anonymous donors that kind of thing and and could you talk a little bit about how what the role of donations play in in a nonprofit like the noya center yeah so um as the development director for those who might not know what that terminology means i'm in charge of the fundraising so individual donations corporate giving grants and we have a nice variety of funding sources uh, we've been very fortunate to have a very dedicated group of individual donors from this community this region over the years as well as you know getting state money um, private family foundations a lot of good business partners in town as far as the cafe uh, there was a little bit of a loan to be paid off so we had kind of a private uh, more targeted approach throughout the the first kind of two thirds of this year and we were able to raise that money there and really had a lot of um, individual donors that were able to really step up and kind of go above and beyond to help us get there, which is really wonderful because it's a whole nother thing. To, it's a whole nother thing to um, kind of, you know, have your normal year where you're raising money for your operations, your education, your normal programs, and then to add this whole nother piece onto it. And so this was a really good learning experience for us, too, to how you raise additional funds for something else and still keep that funding going for your organization. And again, this is your third building that you have your your staffing with volunteers and, and paid staff here here in Fort Bragg. The, this is the first one on the waterfront in Noyo Harbor. You have the the facility on Main Street in Fort Bragg, pretty much across from the Guesthouse Museum. And then you've got on the um, the crow's nest out on the Fort Bragg Noyo headlands um, on property that the city of Fort Bragg and the um, Coastal Conservancy helped acquire. And I know that you have plans for an additional site on that campus, on the, on the headlands. Can you talk a little bit about what that that final facility would look like? It, you know, it's a major undertaking that you're, you're it's pretty ambitious. Um, you know, where it's like a, looks to me, the plans I've seen look like a world-class mu- museum, you know, purpose-built facility. Can you talk a little bit about the, the planning for that? Yeah, so um, the, the big plan is to have a, a building constructed on the Noyo Center, or on the Noyo Headlands, um, 
on the property that the Noyo Center currently uh, owns, uh, 11 acres right by where you mentioned where the crow's nest is. Um, it's going to be called the Ocean Science Center, and that's going to be our main goal to have a big um, museum uh, destination for people from the community as well as um, across the world, we hope, that is going to be developed and built to house our 73-foot blue whale bones um, skeleton that we hope to articulate soon and um, that will be kind of one of the main exhibits of that um, destination along with other marine um, exhibits. Uh, in order in order to do that, we're also planning on constructing what we're calling the Labonatory, which is going to be a building that we'll build ahead of the Ocean Science Center so that we can actually have a place large enough that will allow us to articulate a 73-foot uh, blue whale skeleton. So that's, um, those are in, that's in the works now. We have a, a grant that is going to help us get pre-construction, get us there with permits and doing the final design, building designs um, for that facility. But yeah, that's going to be a really big project and we've been working um, hard on that for a number of years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lynn really touched on it. Um, you know, the, the Ocean Science Center, you're right. The plans, it's ambitious. It's not only would house the blue whale skeleton, it would have some large aquariums. Um, it would have space for labs, for ma maker spaces. It would have a cafe that would be bigger than this one down here, um, plus a lot of other exhibits. So it's ambitious. And I really see, you know, talking about the three facilities we have right now, I'm really seeing this like nice progression where each spot, um, while all connected, kind of are helping us build a piece of that puzzle, what it'll need to be to run that place. You know, we have the interpretive facilities where we have the exhibits, which will be such a large centerpiece on a bigger scale at the at the center. Now we have this place on the river where we can start doing, we can ramp up our research. We can see how to run a cafe. Uh, we can do that piece of getting people more engaged, which will be a large part of that, like building up lab space, both for local folks, but for research teams that want to come from outside the area. So all these different pieces are helping us kind of learn those tools so we are better equipped when it comes time for that capital push to build a center where we know how to run all the different elements that it'll take to do something like that and be a big draw in this community. So in the meantime, the Noyo Center's got a lot on its plate. Uh, again, opening up the Slack Tide Cafe in Noyo Harbor, uh, you know, really impressive site. I mean, I, I saw the transformation. I was down here twice during the renovation. And, you know, actually coming in this morning, I was pleasantly surprised and impressed by the, the ch change since I last saw it. Um, what all do you guys have kind of in the immediate future? Because that's off in the distance, the new facility. So, again, what's kind of recap your kind of what you have in front of you right now? Yeah, so I could address that really quickly. Um, I think one of our next steps is to get a change of use permit for this facility. So here at the, the cafe, um, we're, we're operating under the previous permit because it was a restaurant, um, but we need a change of use permit in order to um, do some more of our uh, research programs that we have planned. Like Michael had mentioned, the abalone broodstock program, which we plan to have here at the harbor, and the um, purple urchin uh, project, which will ideally allow us to uh, work with local fishermen to collect purple urchin that are a problem in the 
ocean right now with um, creating those uh, urchin barrens and destroying the kelp forests um, because the ocean is out of balance. So we're, we're hoping to be able to collect these purple urchin and basically raise them, feed them, and then provide a potential food source um, and product for our community restaurants to be able to serve um, purple urchin uni. So that's another thing that's in the works as far as um, research and, and allowing this uh, change of use permit will allow us to do uh, more of the research side of things from the harbor. So you've clearly attracted a number of volunteers. Um, and some are donors and, and some are volunteering their, their time. Um, if listeners wanted to volunteer with the Noyo Center, could you kind of give a kind of a range of types of things that you're, you're looking for in terms of volunteers? Oh, yeah. Our volunteers do a little bit of everything. And I'm glad you brought them up because this cafe would not be open right now if it was not for hundreds of hours of volunteer work from painting deck to scrubbing kitchen equipment to everything. But um, our volunteers do everything. Uh, one of the main ones, we have docents that, that uh, keep up the crow's nest out on the headlands. That's actually all volunteer-led out there. Uh, they come in, speak with guests coming in, give them a lay of the land there. Uh, we have beach survey teams that go out to different beaches throughout Mendocino County, tracking and kind of tracking numbers, keeping an eye on the different type of plant life, animal life they're seeing there. Uh, this year, we've had volunteers also help us with a Sea Star program where we've been going out once a month during minus tides uh, looking for any evidence of sunflower sea stars, which disappeared from the coast um, some years ago and were a main predator of the purple urchin. There was some evidence that maybe some juvenile ones were seen this spring, so we've been going out to low tide looking for any evidence in those tide pools. Uh, we also have volunteers help us when there's community events. Um, if we have tables and booths set up trying to engage with the public, they'll be out there for that. Um, you know, helping us, you know, just down here, um, you know, with cl cleanup work like that. Um, we'll be doing like a, we'll be doing part of the community cleanup piece later this month. You know, while volunteers help there. So that's just some of the stuff they do. And they'll continue to be evolving work, especially down here when we kind of get an idea of where we can use volunteers in this new space on the harbor. And, and I would say, you know, like people interested can can go to our website, sign up, see some of the different different tasks. But also, if, if people have a particular skill set, always to let us know because there's places maybe we're not seeing that we could use help. You know, I'm in the fundraising grant writing world. Maybe there's people with really great copywriting skills. You know, um, different pieces, places that maybe we're not even thinking of using. You know, we have, we have one volunteer who does a lot of things, but one thing she does is she's cooked up some really yummy goodies and has helped us sometimes at just like little events and receptions we have like to do that so it can be a real wide variety of of things right and that's a good point too so anybody interested in volunteer volunteering with the noyo center can go to our website at noyocenter.org and there's a um, volunteer um, button that they can click and fill in their information and identify those things that they're interested in helping us out okay any final comments for the listeners uh, I just want to tell everybody, just come down to the cafe. You're going to have a great time down here, um, you know, just to experience it, learn more about what the Noyo Center is doing. Um, also, our Discovery Center, if you haven't been down there downtown, it's fabulous. Um, it's just a real wonder, uh, awe-inspiring piece. And, and just thank you to this community. Like, so many people have been asking us about the place, excited for it opening, and we get support from, from so many folks. Uh, across the board both volunteering financially and it really it really makes this part makes this organization a community organization 
Yeah, and I, I definitely want to also shout out to our uh, very dedicated board, uh, staff, and donors, uh, along with those volunteers that helped make this happen. It was truly a, a group team effort, and we wouldn't be where we were without each and every uh, single person helping out, so I appreciate that. And one thing I know you had uh, earlier spoke with Rep Representative Huffman, and I did want to mention that that's how a lot of the programs we can do down here are help. Right now, there's an appropriations bill um, that we have some funding in there for that we, there was kind of a round where presentations were made to his, his office, and ours was one of the ones selected, and we made it past the first round with that, um, and that would really help with some of the research programs that Lynn was touching on earlier down here. So, you know... Um, support comes from a, a lot of different areas and it, and it helps to to have people that are kind of looking out for their local community and wanting to find ways to help us kind of get to that next step of really doing that climate science and preservation that this this region really needs that's it for this episode of citizen you here on mendocino county public radio thank you to our representative in congress jared huffman and to Michael Hicks and Lynn Sullivan of the Noyo Center for Marine Science. As always, I hope you find the work of our guests to be inspirational and thought-provoking, and that you enjoy a fulfilling life. I'm Dan Jurdy, and I'll be back on the first Wednesday of the month. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.